open up, please, to Matthew chapter 21. We took on Sunday, Palm Sunday, we took verses all the way up to verse, actually to 17, uh, but we'll kind of talk about that a little bit, verses 12 of chapter 21 of Matthew, and we're going to survey through the next several chapters to kind of walk you through the week that Jesus uh, in Jerusalem with his disciples and his interactions with those of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who were uh, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest to crucify, crucify from coming in and being honored and glorified like the king riding in on that donkey. And at the end of the, tonight, we were going to see that he is just in the eyes of those people, a criminal that needed to die a horrific death. We know that in the scriptures, in all the gospels, we see the account is, and again, I'll give it to you again in the book of Matthew chapter 21. Also go back and read through this week, Mark in chapter 11, and you'll see where it picks up the story there. And in Luke, it's chapter 19, and you can read through that as well. And of course, John chapter 2. And you can pick up there in chapter 1, 2 and read through those parts this week. I highly recommend you read those through this week multiple times or each take each gospel each day. Because I want you to get the full account of everything so that the Spirit can speak to you of what our Lord um, Jesus went through for you and for me. If you remember, as we take a look here tonight... We said on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, that at the end of Matthew, of chapter 21 there, verse I shouldn't say end, but right there in verses 12 through 17, that if you read just Matthew, you would think that when he went into the temple to cleanse the temple because they were causing this to be a commercialized business of, of where people should be praying and worshiping God and drawing close to God and hearing the, the, the word of God, they were turning in there just being fleeced and taking money from them. And it was all about the money and about commercialism and what they can get out of the people who were coming there to worship God. And the people, even the religious leaders, were taking advantage of the people. That should never happen. And Jesus certainly called it out, flipping tables, righteous anger of flipping tables of what these people were doing. And the Gentile courts in the outer area was for the Gentiles to be able to come and gather there, not just the Jewish believers or Jewish, uh, the Jews, but even the Gentiles could come into the outer courts there at the temple. And this is where he was flipping tables, and that's very important to us, because why was he flipping tables? Was he just the fact that he was just lost it because they were just commercialized and, and, and this is just not right? No, no. It's because he was like, this is the place where people are able to come and freely sit and rest and listen to hear what God has for them. They shouldn't have to be tormented and looked and try to get more money from them as they come to sit and hear the word of God taught and people to pray and, and, and this quietness and a place that's a gathering of love and people. No, no. What was happening was just a big merchandising place and it was just making money. 
So we see that Jesus came in, and you go back and read, especially Luke 19, 47, it tells us he was teaching daily in the temple. Once he got into there and he started showing up, he was cleaning house there in the outer courts because he was coming daily over that next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, coming in and just sitting among in the Gentile courts. Everyone could hear him teach, not just the Jews, but even the Gentiles could hear him teaching what? Sound doctrine. The gospel. He was teaching them and he needed to clean house for that to be in a, an environment for him to be able to come in and teach. Jesus had the purpose of cleansing the temple court because he had to cleanse it so that his people could pray and worship and he could cleanse it and get it, uh, people out and, and clear those tables and stuff so that people could come and just be still and hear what God had for them. And this is so true today. Churches should be a place where you can come and feel you can sit and rest and to hear the word of God. To pray with one another, to be prayed for, and to just hear prayer, being lifted up and talking to God. That is what churches are designed by God for. And so God sit there and he says, I need to clean house. Because not only I need to preach the gospel to them, not only do I need to do that, but I need to teach them sound doctrine of the things to come. I need them to see the connection between the Messiah and who I am and what I am going to fulfill. These things, these two things go together. It has to go together. It has to share the gospel of salvation of Jesus Christ and the instruction of sound doctrine. Those two always pair together beautifully in the house of God. And he had to make it fit for prayer and worship. And that's why he cleansed the temple. Now it's interesting. It's, this, it's so true for us as believers today. God no longer lives among his people in the old covenant he doesn't live in a tabernacle or a temple or any of those kinds of man-made things. Even over the mercy seat is no longer. But today it's in under the new covenant temple. And that is God, the Holy Spirit, performs the same work of cleansing and teaching his people. Does the same work. But he does that in his temples of the new covenant he dwells within the people and for him to dwell within the people he is going to cleanse you and to do a new work in you so that you will learn of your your life has to be of one of prayer and of sound doctrine the Holy Spirit wants to cleanse us so that we can make room to pray and to learn of who He is. Because if you don't, the world will distract you. Your flesh will distract you. Religiosity will distract you. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse us of things that are not of God. So that we can make room 
to have communion, prayer with God, and to be able to learn and to grow in our relationship with God. So you can take whatever view you would like. He did this on Sunday afternoon or into the, the uh, you know, after he was coming in on the donkey and he was flipping tables and then, or you can take the view in, and if you look at the other, the other gospels that it was Monday morning when he came back. I can take both views. I can say he cleaned it twice. The first time he was flipping on Sunday and then Monday morning, morning when he came back in, he got rid of the other ones that were in there that were popping the little tents and tables back up again. Either way, he was cleansing the temple so that he could teach the word of God to all who gathered there. Now it's interesting, at the end of Monday, we know that he took off and with his disciples to go back over and to, uh, to, to Bethany. So we pick back up here, and let's say right here in verse 18, now in the morning he returned to the city, and he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree on the, by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves, and said, let it no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? And Jesus answered and said to them, As assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this uh, mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. I see here in these verses, in this chapter, the rest of chapter 21, and certainly in chapter 22, we see that Jesus is in his last week here, in his last few days, and he's going to get across some really important things to his disciples here as Matthew takes account. And one of them is about faith. He says, this is about faith. This is, without, this is living a life that doesn't doubt what God can do through your life. When you start doubting what God's going to do through your life that is good and right, you're going to have some problems. But if you do live by faith, God is not limited. Do you know that? And I thought we always find that very encouraging to me. Because so many people I minister to, they say, God will never, I'll never be able to give this up. I'll never be able to change. I'll never be, a, a lot of very concrete things. He'll never change. She'll never change. This will never change. This is my situation. This is my life. This is what's always going to be. And I tell people, you need to continue to grow spiritually because you're not there yet in regards to your faith and what God can do. You're not there yet, but you will be. Just keep showing up regardless of how you feel. And you'll see how God will change you. We see in verse 23 of chapter 21 that it's going to, now, now he's talking about faith, that the spiritual leaders are going to come after him. And this really sets the tone for the rest of the, this time frame. It says, now when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. He said, by what authority are you going to do these things? And you gave and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which is to tell, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. 
I love Jesus. He always asks the questions. He doesn't automatically always answer questions. He asks his questions to get clarity so that they can really think through it about what they're asking. And it says right there, he says, the baptism of John. So he gives him a question. Where was it from? From heaven or from man? Who was working through this man? Why was he doing what he was doing? Is this a heavenly thing or is this just a man thing here that we're talking about? Oh, what a great question. What happens right here? It says, they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? Which is a good question. Then they take a look at the other side of the coin. He said, but if we say from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, and they went for the neutral position. <laughs> like, you're, like you're getting away with something. I just won't say anything. I'll just take a neutral position. <laughs> Watch what happens. I love it. He said, he answered, and Jesus said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. You can't be honest. Why would I respond to you? I'm going to let you just sit there, there, because I know what you're doing. Now, the rest of chapter 21, we see that he talks about the parable of the two sons. Again, he's, this is directed to his disciples because he's preparing them. He wants him to talk about him about faith. He wants to talk to him about God's view on some really important things here in regards to how he, God addresses these things. And he uses the parable of the two sons in verses 28 through 32. He talks about the wicked vine dressers in the parable of that from verses 33 all the way down to 46. In chapter 22, he talks about the parable of the wedding feast and how people were open to the wedding feast, but they weren't interested in the wedding feast. They didn't want anything to do with the wedding feast. Again, pointing to the direction of God saying there are people who want the things of God and there's people who reject the things of God and he's just showing them some very practical uh, parables to get them to understand there's two camps in this place and eventually he's going to get to the thing there's there are sheep and there's goats there are those who are saved and there's those who are not going to be saved so he's he's setting them up for all this why because it's ultimately going to come to the crucifixion on the cross and if you believe in what he did on the cross for you. And there's going to be two camps. There's not a third camp. There's not the maybes. There's not the half-hearted ones. You're for Jesus or you're not. You're for God or you're not. There is no in-between. The maybe means no. You know that, right? So if you've been around me long enough, you say, well, pastor, maybe. That's a no. <laughs> that's a no for me. Until proven otherwise, that's just enough. Because you're not a, your yes needs to be your yes, and your no needs to be your no. It doesn't say where in the scripture says your maybe be your maybe. It's, it's really clear. And once you get to grow and mature, your life will reflect a yes or no. There's no maybes. There's no gray area. There's no compromising. There's no... This kinds of mentality will be worked out of you by the Spirit of God that lives within you. And what a blessing that is. So the wedding feast we see in chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage. 
We get down to verse 15, the Pharisees, is it lawful to pay taxes? Or again, they're trying to gain the system with Jesus and trying to find some angle to get him to go against Jesus. Nothing new under the sun, right? But Jesus' wisdom is all right there. What's, you know, in verse 21, render to therefore to Caesar that is things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. I mean, he's so wise in dealing with these people's quirky questions. We don't have to worry about those things, do we? When people ask us really quirky questions about Jesus, just use the scripture. Use the scripture to, it is written. That's all you have to do. You don't have to try to figure out and justify it. You just say it's written. Jesus says this. Well, I don't believe it. Well, that's your problem. I don't have a problem. You have the problem. I, it's, not my, it, it's your fault. That's, you have to deal with that consequence. I don't have to deal with this conversation with you any longer. Jesus didn't deal with it, did he? He says he asked questions and he just made it clear. And then after that, he says, okay, you're like swines, man. I'm, not, I'm just moving on. There's too many other people who are looking for an answer to, to be saved. Just move on. Sadducees, certainly in verses 23 through 33, comes on the scene. And on that same day, the Sadducees says that there, there's no resurrection. Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And their religiosity, they didn't believe in the resurrection. But what do they do? What do they come to Jesus? They start asking him about the resurrection. It was something they don't even believe. Nothing new under the sun, is it? Have you ever had a friend ask you something that they don't believe, but they're asking you like they believe it? And he asks the almost off-the-wall question. Teacher, verse 24, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up, his, raise up offspring for his brother. And that one dies and raise the marries the next brother. And that one dies and raise up the next one. When, they go, when there is a resurrection in heaven, which one is he going to be married to? I got you, Jesus, on this one. But what does Jesus say there? Verse 29 of, of chapter 22. You are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Why don't you say that verse, what Jesus said to the next time someone asks you some crazy question about Jesus, about your belief. Just look at him and say, you are mistaken, Neighbor, you're mistaken, coworker. You're mistaken, my, my family member. Not knowing the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God when you ask me those crazy questions. What does he say in verse 30? For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? There he is again. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He was talking to religious leaders here. These are the Sadducees. These are the people leading God's people, the Jewish people. 
Do you not even know your own scripture that God gave you? I love that is so bold, but so true. You call yourself a Christian? Do you not know the scripture? goes on in verse 34 through 40, he talks about when the Pharisee heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now they get the lawyers out, right? The scribes, the lawyers. And asked him in verse 35 a question, testing him. That's the only reason why they asked him, because they were testing him, constantly testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Oh, isn't that the greatest verses, 37 through 40? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two, great, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. How do you live a Christian life? You need to grow and learn where you learn and understand that you just you need to love God and love others. Because if you love God, you won't go against God. You won't rebel against God. You won't be rebellious against God. You won't deny God. You won't and if you love others, you won't hurt them and and purposely try to go against them and take advantage of them and steal from them and all the and murder and all these things. It's under two great commandments. Can you imagine you're a lawyer ready to go into the details and technicality of the word and he just says, all the prophets and the law that you know so well is just on a beautiful one word love. That must have made that lawyer spin. How do you respond to that? Of course they didn't like that. You see the Pharisees in verse 41 through 46 respond and say, you know, asked him in verse 42, what do you think about the Christ whose son is, whose son is he? Because Jesus could tell that these people were not getting it, so he's going to test them himself, Right? He's asking now the testing question, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, and he quotes Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? So now he's trying to get to the, taking their logic and taking the scripture and bringing light to the scripture clarity so they could possibly make the linkage of who Jesus is. That's how the scripture work. But then for chapter 23, we see there's the woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. And when you hear the word woe, that is not a good word. That is serious deal here. Whoa, you're in deep trouble because of your stance. We take that all the way over until we get to verse 37. 
after he's talking about you fools, you're blind, you're white tombstones, you're bone, dead bones. I mean, he does not let up until all the way over to that 37 through 39 when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hen gathers its, her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, verse 26. Now, as we continue here, he now shifts now really away from, I believe, the religious leaders. He's had enough. He called them out on who these people are. And he really focuses now in, in verse 24 and 25, he's really getting the disciples to be prepared to what they have no clue is about to happen. What does he teach them? He talks about the prediction of the the destruction of the temple. Remember how proud they were of the temple? They bring him out. Oh God, look at how beautiful this structure is. Isn't this gorgeous? He said, that's not going to stand. Not one stone's going to be left in place. It's going to be tipped over. Oh, can you imagine them in their minds? Have you ever been to Jerusalem and saw this place? You would think the same way. There's no possible way those walls are coming down. They were. They did. But he talks about the signs of the times and the end of the age. And he starts talking about them, of what it's going to be like before Jesus, he comes back. And at the end of the age, when all this is all going to just, just go away, he says, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to be a lot of sorrows. It's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Verse 6, we're going to see pestilence. We're going to be, all see these things are going to be happening it's going to cause tremendous turmoils, but especially 24 verse 12. Because lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold. Don't be surprised by these things that you see. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. And then he talks about the great tribulation period. Those seven years of God's wrath coming down upon the unbelievers. He talks about the coming of this, uh, the Son of Man, verses 29 through 31. And how he will be coming back and and, his, and set his feet once again on the Temple Mount, and he will reign and rule and reign on this earth. So he's painting a vision of the big picture of what's going to happen. This is not the end. And when it gets really, 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 really bad, it's not the end of the story. When we see things getting really, 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 really bad, it's not the end of your story. Do you, do you, do you realize that? It's really, 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 really bad in your life right now. But it's not the end of your story. It's just a piece of puzzle of the story. It may be multiple pieces. For some of us who are older, we've got a few more pieces of the puzzles already figured out. But it's not the end of the story. 
We know the end of the story because as believers, we know that we are going to rule and reign with Jesus on this earth for eternity. We'll be going to heaven prior to that. Praise the Lord, right? He talks a little bit more at the end there, the parable of the fig tree, verse 32. Talking about heaven and earth in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will, now, will by no means pass away. What God has spoken to us will not pass away. That's why we, we want to know his word and understand it and apply it. And he talks about, be careful, no one will know the day and time when this all will take place. Everyone will kind of come up with their own little theories and write their own little books and they'll make their own little you know, teachings and tapings of what they believe God has shown them. Don't believe them. Not even amounts. Not even listen. Don't even think about even going past the first sentence when he says, I know the day and time when Jesus is coming back. Shut them off and never to go back because they're non-believers. They're heathens. And yes, he uses Noah as a great, in verse 37, the days of Noah as a great example of how he took the people and, and uh and it goes on and on and on and on here. Verse 25, he talks about the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. The parable of the talents in verses 14 through 30. He talks about the Son of Man who will judge the nations, 31 through 46. Again, he's teaching and preparing them the things that they need to understand. And then we get to a new day, and that is Tuesday, chapter 26. A lot happened on Monday, didn't it? Maybe it would happen on Tuesday, but I see from the scripture wise, I look at 26, and he, we see things now have changed. And we see from chapter 26, one, and for at least the book of Matthew, 1 through 16, talks about some th- critical things that's happening on day 3 here of Passover week or Passion week of Tuesday. And so it came to pass when Jesus had finished all of these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. After a couple of days, Passover is going to happen. You know it's going to happen on Thursday. And when that happens, I'm going to be put up to be crucified. Now that's a heavy conversation, isn't it? Then the chief priests and scribes and the elders of the people assembled in, at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his head and as he sat at the table this is the first place this is three anointings Jesus took place this is number two and when this took place this is the only one it was on the on the head the other two were on the feet if you remember we don't know who this woman is that did this but when this, his scribes saw it, they were indignant. They were angry. It wasn't just Judas that was angry. 
It said disciples, plural. Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. How much was that? Probably around 300 denarii. But when Jesus was aware of it, when he heard that they were murmuring and complaining, getting angry, what does he say? Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. That woman understood when Jesus said, I'm going to die. She showed a form of worship by already anointing with of, of oils, of, of showing a form of worship, of giving. Surely, he says in verse 13, I say to you, whatever this gospel is preached, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And we're saying it today. A form of worship. What else took place? Judas, after leaving this, it appears in verse 14, one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and, and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Jesus delivered Jesus to you. And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he saw opportunity to portray him. We see in the other gospel, if you go back and read, you will see that Satan is in the picture with this moment. Shown, Satan shows up in Judas's life and empowers him to do this terrible thing against Jesus. And we'll see it once again at the upper room here in a minute where he, Satan enters him when Jesus says, go do it now. Go do what you already plan on doing. And Satan enters in him and empowers him to go do Exactly, to go lead them to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But guess what happened when he allowed Satan into his life? Brought him to no hope and brought him to endless and suicidal. So we see that Judas has now gone against this thing. He realized, wait a minute, Jesus was supposed to be the king. I was going to be the treasure. I was going to be part of the inner crowd here. This was going to be a great lifestyle, great position, great power. This was going to be my life. But he didn't become the king. He's telling me he's going to die now. I see this waste and all this money. I, what, let me go see what I can get out of the religious leaders so I can gain from this, this religiosity for my own personal benefit. Be very careful when you're looking to try through religion to get something for your own personal gain. You could be opening yourself up to demonic forces. That's how it happened for Judas. Hello? So what happens now, I think in verse 17, we now see Wednesday is taking place in the account of Matthew. We see now that 
Jesus is going to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And now on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, his, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city of the certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So we know verses 17 through 25 that it's now Passover and it's going to be that upper that, that, that last supper with his disciples. We see in verse 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink, it from, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So that account from verses 17 through 30, and again, you can go back and look at the other accounts of the Gospels, but it's significant because why is it Wednesday night? Why isn't it Friday night? Good Friday. Or those kinds that we traditionally we do. And here's the stance that I, as I read the scriptures, we know that uh, he was to rise six days prior, which is if you count the days, it puts us in the fact that it's going to be a Thursday. We also know that you cannot do any work on certain days, which was on the day of Sabbath or the high Sabbath. We also know that he was buried for three days and three nights. We know that validated by Jesus because he shows it says the Jonah was buried for three days and three nights. And just like Jonah, the, man, the Son of Man will be also. So when you take a look, we also know on the, uh, the, the uh, day of the first fruits is when Jesus was raised from the dead. We know that in the scriptures. That is the Sunday. So when you take a look at all those accounts, there's three views. He was the Passover and crucifixion. Was on the Wednesday, Thursday, or was it Thursday, Friday, or was it a Friday, Saturday? I mean, you have to look at those things. I take a stance of Wednesday is when they had Passover. They went out over to the Garden of Gethsemane. He was arrested that night. Through the night, he was beaten, ripped, and his beard ripped out, the, the scourging, everything into Thursday. And he was crucified on Thursday. And I'll show you as we continue with the scripture. And by 6 o'clock he was buried. And that's when you do the calculation. Because remember a day is from sundown to sunup. And when you count those you get three nights and three days. Again you can take whatever position you want to. It happened. You can choose Wednesday or Thursday. In the scripture, I can't see how it can be Friday at all. There's just not enough days and nights to make that happen. Wednesday, you might be able I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that why because of Mary Magdalene and a couple of examples why I believe Thursday is when this all took place of the crucifixion. 
So here we're in the Upper Supper. They had this thing. We know what takes place here. He's bringing to his disciples the truth of the fact that he is going to die and that his body and his blood is going to be this new covenant. It's no longer about the dead of animals. It's not about going to the temple. It's no longer going about these things. It is all about Jesus and what his body is going to go through and the shedding of his blood for the sin of the world. That is what it's all about. And he needs to die. That was his mission. That was the reason why his father, Heavenly Father sent him is to die on the cross in crucifixion. And that was prophesied before the Roman Empire even came up with the concept of crucifixion. It was prophesied that was going to happen. And back in those days, that horrifying method of killing wasn't even invented at the time. And so we see here, after their supper, after this is all going on, we see in verse 31 of chapter 26 that Jesus predicts Peter's denial. He said, then Jesus says to him, but make, remember the count of in the Gospels. As they're having this meal, remember Jesus said, one will betray me. And it's the one that I hand and it double dips with me and I hand him this thing. He's the one. Remember it all? They said, they were, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Remember that conversation? And then when Jesus says, what are you going to betray me? All of a sudden they're like, who's going to betray you? Is it me? You know, they, started, they all knew it's a possibility. Are you talking about me betraying? Guess what? We always say, of course it was Judas that's going to be the one that betrays. But let me tell you. They all betrayed Jesus, did they not? They all scattered. They all left Jesus. Even Peter, when he goes to Peter and says, this is going to happen, and Peter's response there in verses 31 through 35 says, I will never leave you. Surely I say to you, Jesus says, this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter, in his nice little strong stance, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Of course, all the disciples chimed right up. Yeah, we're with Peter. We, wouldn't just, we won't you know, betray you. We won't ever leave you. Sure you won't. When the pressure comes up and things get difficult, and you can't see how this is all going to work out for you? Are you going to leave Jesus and go back to the old life? Hello? When things get difficult, are you going to give up and walk and go back to the old life? That's the question for all of us. That was the question and dealing with there at the end of the supper and going out to the garden. They haven't even made it to the garden of Gethsemane yet. And that's where we see in verse 36, all the way through, all the way through to, to, uh, to uh, 56, we see the whole account in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll talk about this at the more in detail on Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday. 
but how important it is to understand that that battle of coming into the and to surrender his will to his heavenly father to drink of the the cup of wrath that he made a decision of he's going to the cross that was his purpose his plan and while he was praying he was being prepared to go to the cross his disciples we're not praying. They were what? Snoring. They were sleeping and zonked. And they were not prepared for what was going to hit. May that be a lesson for us. Men and women who, are, no, women who pray will be prepared for the next spiritual battle that will be faced. If it's not a spiritual battle, it's a physical battle, it's a mental battle, whatever it is, men and women of prayer will be prepared. If you're sleeping and you're passive and you're just going through life, you will not be prepared for what is going to hit your life. We must be men and women of prayer to be prepared. So we see that it was going through. We see the betrayal and the arrest in verse 47 when Judas leads this mob, an entire div, uh, of, uh, of an army, <laughs> like he's gonna, they're, they're gonna arrest, you know, you know, take over a huge battle. It's just a, they've had so many. But you think about this: if you've ever been to Jerusalem, they're on the Mount of Olives. Here's the the temple, and they're coming down the Kindred Valley in that nighttime, and the lights, and they could see him coming across. Oh, you can imagine the scene. Judas had to come up and kiss Jesus so they can know exactly who is the person they're going to arrest. And you're like, why wouldn't they not know who Jesus? But well, it's nighttime. I always thought, okay, it's nighttime. They have to make sure they figure out who's the right person because he wasn't. He didn't stand out. He's not the six foot five, beautiful flowing hair. You know, he was a little Jewish guy. I bet you had the biggest nose. That goes against all the pictures, doesn't it? So what happens? They take him, and then we see this brutality. Because now we're coming from Wednesday night into now Sunday mor- or Thursday morning time frame. And we see that Peter, yes, right there at the, as they take him there to, uh, to, the, to the leaders there and to, to face Caiaphas, the high priest, and seeing all this going around, trying to pin him on something, to do something, to get him to be able to, to find a way to get him to be falsely accused, to kill, to have him killed. That's their whole purpose and goal. And they didn't want to get the people uprising, so we'll get the government to turn on them. Well, somehow, some way, we're going to get this to happen. And they, even Peter is tested three times. He's tested. You've been with Jesus? No. You know Jesus? No. You're one of the disciples? No. And these are little girls who are calling him out on it. But Jesus in chapter 27 is handed over to the Pontius Pilate. And even Pontius Pilate knew that this man did not deserve crucifixion to be killed. Even his wife, God used his wife to, to warn him that he should not have anything to do with this. 
but he was more of a man pleaser, a crowd pleaser. Judas comes to the end of himself and kills himself. Satan never is going to let you up until he destroys you. Satan will not just let you go do one thing. He'll take you all the way, all the way to destruction. But anyway, Jesus faces Pilate. We see in chapter 27, verses 11 through 14. They have this, this debate about Barabbas, this terrible, notorious prisoner called Barabbas, verse 16 of chapter 27. He's an evil man. They all know he's evil. He, he shouldn't, he's a political, goes against the government, all this stuff. But all of that... Why did they hand Jesus over? Verse 18 of chapter 20, 27, chapter, chapter 27, verse 18, it's very simple why they handed Jesus over. Look at that. For he knew that they had handed him over because of what? Envy. Do you see how powerful envy can destroy we must be very careful and not allow envy in our life. It's a powerful sin that will destroy relationships. We see in the soldiers take over. He, he's mocked in verse 27 through 31. They label him the king on the cross in verse 32. And now when they came out, they found a man of Syrian, Simon by name, him. They compelled to bear his cross. Why? Because Jesus lost so much blood. It was so beaten, so just beyond recognition. Body starting to swell with edema and everything else because of just the trauma. Can't even carry. So they, this man, Simon, is used by God. <laughs> that changed that man's life. We won't get into that. But that changed that man's life for Jesus carrying his, his, his Savior's cross. And they took him up there in verse 33 to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted, he would not drink it. He would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. We see it right there. They divided my garments among them. For my clothes, they cast lots. That's Psalm 22, verse 18. Sitting down, they wept, watched over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is, the, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's true. <laughs> they put the truth. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their, their, their heads, saying, "Who you who destroy the temple and build it and... Build it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others himself. He cannot save. 
If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and, he, and we will believe him. Oh, you won't. You trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers were, who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Verse 45, now when the sixth hour, that's noontime, on Thursday until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. That day there was darkness over the land and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabakini, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. They didn't take it from him. He gave up his life. Then, he, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Can you imagine the scene in the temple? And the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That was a sight. Not many people talk about that, do we? That was an incredible sight. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into, no, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. That moment of the earthquakes and rocks splitting and things happening in the temples, the dead bodies coming to life and walking around, that would shake you. Like, this is guy is exactly who he said he was. Verse 55, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself has also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in the, his new tomb, which he had hewed out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you see the, the skull, the, the, the mountain, the Golgotha. And right next to it is the garden, tomb garden. And it's right where they believe is where Jesus was buried in night there. So it didn't take much to move the body. Just it's the north of the temple, just outside the walls. It's, it's a perfect when you read the scripture. And uh, we see also Nicodemus was there helping Joseph. 
and he brought all the the anointing and the ornaments, and, and they did a quick wrap with a white linen cloth to get it into their the body into the tomb and close it because Passover. I mean, um, yeah, Passover, the high Sabbath was going to take place, and there was no work that could be done; it had to be done, be complete. Now we don't go into all the details tonight, but let me tell you, I encourage you to go through all four gospels. Read all four, put it through in your mind, meditate on of what your Lord went through that week. A lot has happened during this week. We find now he is buried and he will be buried for what? Three days and three nights. And on Sunday, the first flutes, and I'll talk a little bit more about that prophecy-wise, why this was important on this day. Passover, the day he was he was crucified is also the day of the God bringing the Egyptians out of Egypt, if you remember. And I'll make those ties together on our Sunday message.